so much. Roshos, uh, Rabbi Brand and Nicola, thank you so much for having me. Today we're going to be speaking a little bit about how to make the Pesach Haggadah relevant. Nobody should have misunderstood. You don't need to be a millennial to understand what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be speaking about the principles of content creation, how to make content relevant no matter the age, and really using the principles of what millennials and teenagers are excited about nowadays to hopefully make your Seder come alive in a similar way. There's a fantastic eulogy that I read by Rev. Aaron Lopiansky from Silver Spring, Maryland. And he was eulogizing one of the Roshi Yeshiva in the mirror, who was Rev. Nachum Persavitz, also a family member of his. And he was describing that there are two types of people, and there's also two types of Torah. You ever have a friend who you think back, when was the first time I met this guy? The first time I met him, the moment I met him, I couldn't stand the guy. I couldn't stand him. I met him the first time, and he was so quiet, he was standoffish. We have friends that we've developed long relationships with, but the first time you meet them, the first time you interacted with them, this friend was just... I, I, and you can reminisce about it with him. We met each other. We had nothing to talk about. I couldn't. I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand the sight of you. I couldn't smell. Couldn't stand the smell of you either. Couldn't deal with you. So you sit with this person, and eventually you built up a relationship because you realize that even though this person was standoffish, even though this person was distant, there was a depth and there was an investment that you had in that relationship that over time you became very, very close. Over time you invested in that relationship. And eventually, over the years, look at it, we, we've, been, we've been friends for 10, 20, 30 years. And even though that first time we met, we weren't very close. And then you have another type of friend. You have another type of friend where the moment you meet them, the moment you met them, you, you were in school together, you both had the same snack, you both had the same juice box, you were in college together, you were taking the same class. You meet the friend, the second you meet them, boom, we, we were best friends. And it's been, it's been smooth sailing ever since. The moment you meet the guy, you see his smile, he gives you a big hug, you see her, she's so sweet, she's so kind, so welcoming. You meet a friend and it instantly, instantly, you become extremely close. Instantly, the friendship builds. And Rav Lopiansky says that it's the same with Torah. We have two types of Torah in this world. He says there's some Torah, he compares it to the Marsha. I'm not going to go in depth with his comparison. But he says that there's some Torah, you open up, it's like a Marsha. The first time you read through this commentary, you don't understand it. It's difficult. It's long-winded. You ever have somebody who tells you a Devar Torah and they, they want to tell you a Devar Torah and they don't have it clear. So they pull you over and say, let me tell you a beautiful idea on the Parsha. And you say, oh, oh I, I'm, I'm about to leave. I've got my kids. So, let me tell you a quick idea on the Parsha. Say, okay, if it's quick, you know, I'm on my way out. So he says, okay, in, in this week's Parsha, there's a beautiful puzzle kid. I think it's in Perch of Beis, Chav Gimel, and he starts, he starts getting a little flustered. The Pasuk says the verse, and he starts fumbling. He doesn't really remember. He says, hold on one second. Let me get a Chumash. 
Right when he says get the chumash, that's when you bolt. You make the door. You say, okay, go, go get the chumash. Oh, it's in four rooms over. Kids, quickly, you grab the kids, you bolt out of there. You know that you're going to be there. If he comes back with that chumash, you're going to be there 45 minutes an hour. This isn't going to be quick. He told you it was going to be quick. So some Torah, to appreciate it, it takes a long time. You need to invest in it. You need to let it swish around in your mouth. And there's other Torah, which he compares to the Chidushi Harim, which is the type of Torah, the first time you hear this idea, the first time you hear that Torah concept, your, your face beams. You said, that's what I've been waiting for. That, that's what I have been missing. It's like that friend where you meet them and right away you have a smile. Right away you connect with them. So if Arnold Lopiansky says that there's some Torah, and I think the Haggadah is like this, that have both qualities. They have both qualities. That the first time you meet the Haggadah, the first time you think back to your, to your parents, grandparents, those memories that you have of the Pesach Seder, of Passover, a smile goes across your face. You remember as a kid. I remember as a kid. I think it's my earliest memory, standing up on the couch, looking out the window. When, when, literally, when I was not tall enough to look out the window, I had to sit up on the couch, on the leg of the couch, like I watched my son do, and stare out waiting for my aunt and uncle, who we only saw once a year on Pesach, that was more than enough. <laughs> and they would come in, they would come in waiting for them to come for the, for the Pesach Seder. And it was, it was a joy, it was a joy. And you have those early memories, and it was such a joy. But Pesach is also, it's that friend that over years, that relationship builds. And it has to get richer, and it has to get deeper, and it has to get more sophisticated. And I hope that a little bit of what we're going to share today are going to be both of those friendships. It's going to be the friendship of the Pesach Seder, that it could bring a smile to your face right away, and ideas that right away are instantly recognizable to a millennial, to a grandparent, to a young child, an idea that can be, that has the dexterity for different age groups and different people to appreciate. Because that friend who has the warm smile, that friend who you meet right away, it's not an age thing. That person, he, he become, it was an instant connection. It was something much more than, oh, we were in the right place at the right time. But we also need to find the ideas that we can develop and invest in and take our Haggadah, because the Haggadah is all about perpetuating the Jewish tradition that we can perpetuate over the years. So, I want to begin with three very quick tips about the Pesach Seder. You have a Haggadah in front of you right now, that hopefully you're more than welcome to use at your Pesach Seder. When your spouse asks you why your Seder plate is covered in Danish, you will explain to her, that because I was eating a delicious Danish at the Kolel over my Haggadah, I did not listen to Rabbi Brand that I shouldn't eat it over my Haggadah, which is why our Seder table is covered in delicious Chametzdik Danish. Okay, so be careful. But you could use this at your pencil. Right away you should notice over here, this isn't a book. We didn't publish this as a book. We deliberately published the Haggadah to feel almost like a magazine. Because... A lot of people right now, in the age that we live, I don't know about you, m most of the time that I spend reading is on the phone, or I pick up the lo a local magazine. A local, whatever my wife brings in. She has a magazine called This Week, or Bloomberg, whatever magazine you have in the, in the home. And we wanted people to feel comfortable that it shouldn't feel like a Haggadah safer. A lot of times, the Haggadah's forum nowadays, the, the books... 
the commentary is very, very long. It's just the friend who you need to sit with for two or three hours to get to know them. You're going through Kiddush, and you see the... You have Kiddush text on top, and you have this... It's like one word on top, and it's 90% commentary at the bottom. So you're saying Kiddush, and you say Baruch, four pages of commentary. You turn Ata, and you have like 80 Varla from all the YU Russia Yeshiva. You turn over another bit... We wanted it very simple. You have the whole text right in front of you, and the idea can be right next to it. So this is deliberately like this. But I want to share with you three very quick ideas that are general, not even in this Haggadah. We're going to go through some of the highlights in this Haggadah, but I want to give three very general tips. Tip number one. The most important thing that we are trying to do at the Pesach Seder is we're trying to trying to fulfill our mitzvahs, we're trying to create memories. We're trying to create memories with our children, with our parents, with our family, cousins, whoever is there. We're trying to leave an impression to form memories of Jewish identity. That's what we're doing. And that was at my Pesach Seder, and that was growing up. In order to do that, I want to give you a very counterintuitive creative tip. And this is what my father does at his Pesach Seder. I think my father, our Pesach Seder is a genius in all of the dysfunction. And I just want to put that out there. If you have a dysfunctional Pesach Seder, welcome to the club. You're in the right place. You're in the right place. If there's a certain... But I want to tell you one quick tip. I have a close friend in the Willig family, Rabbi Mordechai Willig, who's a Rosh Hashiva in YU, runs his Seder the same way. And this is... Every year, there are certain things. Rabbi Willig does it with everything. My father does it with certain things. He repeats himself. Every year, he returns back to the same ideas. You would think, are you crazy? You say the same ideas? They saw that episode already. They're going to fast forward to it. A, A, nowadays, teenagers, everybody's watching the same episode five or six times. They're going back. They're watching it again. They're reading the article about it. But B, if you want to form that memory, find the ideas that talk most to you at the, at the Pesach Seder. Don't feel the pressure to switch them out every year. If it's a gorgeous, sweet, delicious, crisp idea, share it every single year. My father says the same exact idea every single year on Karpas. I'm not going to... It's copywritten, so I can't share it with you. But every single year, he shares the same exact idea on Karpas. My mother says the same exact thing before Vanitzak, which is that's where our whole family stops. And we say a special tefillah for Cholim, because my father, who's an oncologist had a patient one time who told him that when we say the, the, the verses of Vanitzak, which we could talk about, is a special skula, it's a special merit to daven for people who are sick. And she asked my father, can you daven for me during this time in your Pesach Seder? She's since passed away, but every year we take out time in our Pesach Seder to daven for people who are sick. But we do, we do it every year. We do it every year. And it's, it's something that I return to. You know, when I was in, when I was in near Yisroel, there was something very interesting in the dining room, how they ran the dining room in Ner Yisrael. Every day in Ner Yisrael, the way that they ran the dining room, usually, is you come to the dining room and you sit at whatever table you want. You sit at whatever table you want. On Shabbos and Yontif, there were assigned tables. You can't just sit at whatever table you want. You were assigned a table. And that was tricky sometimes, because somebody, let's say, I don't have somebody to sit with, I don't have somebody to connect to. But I realized it was something very brilliant, because... When you don't have an assigned table, you're not approaching a table. You just kind of plop down wherever you need to be. 
On Shabbos and Yantiv, you want to approach your Shabbos table. You need to make it yours. You need to make it something that you are coming to and returning to every year and build that familiarity with the people who you're sitting with that it creates a culture that's going to stick with you from week to week that your Shabbos becomes familiar like a friendship, like we began beginning with. And the way to do that is repeating. It doesn't have to be your whole Pesach Seder. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. But find those ideas that speak best to you. And repeat them every single year. That's number one. Number two. There's a, there's a Yiddish word. It's called shtick. It's called shtick. Right? Sometimes you meet somebody, you roll your eyes, oh, he's a shticky guy. Okay? On, on the Seder night, you can get a little shticky. What do I mean by that? This is about creating culture. It doesn't have to be with silliness. It could be with silliness. But it's about finding little family cute things that you can incorporate year after year. I'll give you an example, not from the Pesach Seder, then I'll give you two from the Pesach Seder. Every year, on Hanukkah, when we sing Mosur, so part of the Mosur says Chel Paro. So my sister, Rachel, who's close to 40, when she was little, they would say Chel, as if, because that was her nickname, they would all look at her. So every year, all Beshevkins, no matter where they find themselves, when they sing Chel Paro, we all turn around at an imaginary Rachel, six years old, and say Chel Paro. It is a culture that now is in, through the entire family. It's a shtick. It's meaningless. It's not a halacha. It's not something that I learned from my Rosh Hashiva. It's not something that the Rosh Kolo told us to do. But it's a family culture that every Hanukkah, no matter where a Beshevkin is, you know that they're turning around and doing Chel Paro. Here are two things that we do at our Pesach Seder. One of them is ridiculous, but I'm going to share it with you because this is how you create memories, how people come to your Seder, and it's, it's great, it's joyous, it's a little dysfunctional, that's great, that, that's fantastic. It's something that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. Number one, we go through, in the Pesach Seder, we go through the entire Kadesh Urchatz. So we go through the entire one at the beginning. Kadesh Urchatz. You sing at the beginning? So then at the beginning of each one, we start again from the beginning, and then, wherever you are, let's say we're going to, to Urchatz, so Kadesh, Urchatz, and everybody has to freeze. Freeze frame. Literally, like it's like charades. So everybody freezes. And we do that for each one. Kar, pa, everybody has to stop. And we have this little game of like freeze frame. We're, we're grown adults, there's some little kids around the table. The kids love it, this game, where you stop and you freeze frame. They love it, because they always pick ridiculous positions, and then we continue going. But the adults get into it too, we have a great time. And we're sitting there, a bunch of adults, and we're freeze framing in this song every time that we start a different section of the Pesach Center. It works, the kids love it. Number two is my brother and I, well, not just my brother and I, we have old Yiddish songs that I've only met one other family and some families online that we sing at our Pesach Seder. Rabbi Brand promised me that I would not sing. I got all my singing out just now. There's going to be no singing at this sheer today. I don't want the crowd to, you know, really bust through that door over there. There's not going to be a heavy amount of singing. But I do want to ask if anybody knows this song. We sing a song, it's in Yiddish, called Shik Daha. It's about, it's basically Chad Gadia, but about an apple. It's a Yiddish song. It's a rip-off of Chad Gadia. It's not very creative. It's just, instead of a goat, it's with an apple. And the whole thing's in Yiddish, and our family sings it at the end of the Pesach Center. If you could Google it online, I found other old Yiddish families. My father stole it from the other family who sings it. But it's an old Yiddish song. But aside from that, we sing different points of the Pesach Seder. Uh, specifically in Hallow, we sing the same songs together, my brother and I. And that has become a highlight of our Pesach Seder. 
And it was something that I would strongly recommend you building in your shtick is finding songs that your family enjoys singing. Again, some of the songs are the classic Dayenu. Some of the songs, we find the Hallel song that we like, and we put, the, we put the, the music to it, and it's gorgeous. And we remember it every single year. And it's fantastic. So number one is repeat yourself. Number two is shtick. Now I want to talk about number three, and I want to get inside this Haggadah. And I want to share with you what I think is the most powerful idea. It may be something that you already know, or that you've been through. As we turn through the Haggadah, I just want to kind of show you some things that might be helpful at your Seder. If you open it up, even before there's numbers, and you have your Haggadahs right in front of you, we have a very nice infographic. A big part of what we've been trying to do is create infographics. Right now, the, the hottest field, not in education, the hottest field in, um, in really in the professional world right now is big data and data visualization. Big data is how do you analyze it? Anybody, anybody read Nate Silver's blog, 538, which analyzed election predictions, did a great job with that. Uh, but you could watch, you know, kind of data visualization and how we analyze big data. I'm trying to take those principles and do that with our big data, which isn't the numbers of, you know, election sentiments, but the big data of our tradition. We've got big data too. We've got Gemaras, we have Midrashim, we have Chumash, we have Rashi, we have all of these Midrashim. How do we take all of this data and visualize it and put it on a page so people, it's pleasing to the eye. They're used to seeing it. If you open up now, just to know what we're competing with. If you open up the New York Times now, the New York Times puts all their big money in data visualization, both in video and in print. When you open up a New York Times, or you go to the New York Times website... It's not just a long article like you remember the, the old gray lady that they used to call the, the New York Times. That's not what it is anymore. You have data visuals, right? You have data visualization where the way that they depict and explain journalistic stories to you is very sophisticated. It's not just a long article that you have to turn 50 pages for. So that's what we're trying to do educationally in our Haggadah. So over here is what's on the Seder plate, and then we have the Passover Seder cheat sheet. Very easy, just goes through each section, a word on each, and then we have matzah breakers. This is just shtick. If you want more shtick ideas, I don't have to go through another, but there's ten shtick ideas. I'm skipping over, we're going to come back. I want you to turn, if you could find it, to go all the way to page 14, because I think this is the most important page in the Haggadah. And it's an article that maybe you've already shared with them, but I think it's worth, it's worth repeating because it is so fundamental. Page 14, you can look at it all the way at the bottom. It's the beginning of Magid. It's how we decided to introduce Magid. There was an article in the New York Times. This is the page, what it should look like over here. Article in the New York Times that discussed a... A psychology study that happened at Emory University by Marshall Duke. And he wanted to know what keeps families together. How do families stay together? And if you look at the bold line right after that, that first paragraph, he writes, and I'm going to read straight from this article, he writes, The ones who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they face challenges, she said. Her husband was intrigued and along with a colleague, Robin Fivers, set out to test her hypothesis. They developed a measure called the Do You Know Scale that asks children to answer 20 questions. 
Examples included, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Do you know an illness or something really terrible that happened to your family? Do you know the story of your birth? Dr. Duke and Dr. Fiverch asked those questions of four dozen families in the summer of 2001 and taped several of their dinner table conversations. They then compared the children's results to a battery of psychological tests the children had taken and reached an overwhelming conclusion. The more children knew about their family's history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successfully they believed their families functioned. And look at the questions that it talks about. And in that study, it divides up to three different types of family narratives. He says there are three family stories that we share. In this study, they said, the first family story is called the ascending narrative. Your grandfather came to this country. He was totally broke. He sold apples. He took the apples. He bought an apple stand. He took the apple stand. He bought the real estate from the apple stand. He took the real estate from the apple stand. And he opened up a nursing home. And that was the story. And since then, it's been the rest is history. And that's what he did. It was the ascending narrative. He came over here. Started with apples, and now all the nursing homes in, in, in a 50 mile radius is the grandfather. That's story number one. That's the ascending narrative. Then he says there's something called a descending narrative. And I know families with this too. You should know your grandfather, he has his name on a hospital, but after they gave the money to the hospital, the business fell apart. He was over leveraged with his real estate. We had to cut back. We sold the home, we got something more modest, we moved, they couldn't pay for me to go to college, so I had to get a, was able to get the job that I was hoping for. I've been working at, at this place for a very long time, and we live in a, in a much more modest home. We don't have what, what grandpa had, but you should know, you should know, your great-grandfather, that name, he was a very, very prestigious, prominent person, and we're not there right now. And that's the descending narrative. The narrative in this study that they found is the most successful narrative for teaching children about control over their lives. For teaching children that they have control of their destiny and they can handle whatever life throws at them is what he calls the oscillating narrative. And that's the narrative, and it's the narrative that I grew up with, where we grew up in what my bubby used to call, I, I'm going to leave out the first word, it begins with a C and ends with an appy, Little Town. That's what my bubby used to call it, where we grew up. There's one person in this room, Dr. Greenland, who knew, who knew my bubby, grew up in that head, but they, he didn't grow up in that town. He grew up in a fantastic <laughs> town. I'm not calling him out on that, but he knew, he knew my bubby. I have to, I have to give, uh, give him cover for that. And, um, and he grew up in a place, not, not much happening, not, not many people came out of there. And my father, thank God, he got into medical school and things went well. And then in the middle, I remember my family, my father's medical practice started to fall apart. They tried to fire him from the hospital. He got a, he got a, a letter that said, pack up your bags in 90 days. He had to call and protect you from a board member, ask for more time. He had to borrow loans, realizing that now he needs to start his own practice. This isn't going to last. There's no way he could say without it. He just tried to fire me. He had to borrow off of our house. He had to ask his father-in-law for money. Things got very tight for a while. And then he set up the new practice. He's paying back loans. Things worked out. Others, the oscillating narrative is the one that goes up and down. And I want you to know that in all of your lives, and in all of our tfilos, we have these two narratives. 
any time that we sing in Tehillim, we use two words to introduce Tehillim. Tehillim opens up with the words Mizmor and Shir. Mizmor and Shir. Mizmor and Shir are usually translated, if you open up an article, they're probably translated as Mizmor and Shir. There are two different words for song. There are two different words for song. What is the difference between these two words? I want to share with you what I think is a very sweet insight that relates to this. A Shir shares the root with the word like a Shura, a straight line. It's sequential. And there are times in our lives, and we pray for this, and we hope for this, where life is going to follow very sequentially. It's going to be a shira. Just like a shura, it's a straight line. You got into school, you got the great job, you got the promotion, you got the family, you got the kids. You got the, and everything works out one after the other. And we sing for that when it appears in our lives, and we pray for it that it should appear in our lives. But in retrospect, when we look back at our lives... I've never even met anybody in my entire life who really lives a life of Shira, who really lives a life exclusively of sequential growth, whose family narrative is completely ascending one step after the other. I grew up from the root word Mizmor comes from the word of Zemer, which is a grapevine. You ever see a grapevine? How grapevines grow? They're winding. Over, they overcome and they're winding over the gates and they're pouring over and they go up and then they loop over and they go down and they're winding. It looks like a roller coaster. Because the song of our lives and our journey is very much like a mizmor. And we sometimes in life we look at these shira moments. Okay, it should be sequential. We doubt that it should be sequential. But we also give thanks and we connect to the mizmor times in our lives. Where life feels like a zemer. And life feels like that grapevine that's looping over and over. And that's the oscillating narrative of family. So at your Pesach Seder, and this is tip number three, repeat yourself, shtick and culture, number three is your Pesach Seder needs to be woven in family narrative. There needs to be a time at your Pesach Seder where you talk about your family, your fathers, your mothers, your grandparents, your bubby, your Zadie. And you'll say, well, talk about my... We got, we got to stick to the Haggadah. We got to get through. We got to get through this text. That's not, a, that's not a Devar Torah. It's the greatest Devar Torah you could say in the world. Is your family story. Is your family history. And look at the questions. And you can look it up online. Pick two of these questions. Pick one story. Pick one story that's terrible. About a great-grandparent. About a grandfather who... It didn't work out. I'm sure, in my family, we don't have a shortage of those. We could find stories. Again, it didn't work out. It was difficult. And this is what happened. And then find, find something, a shira, in your family story that you can share. And that way, when your kids walk away from that Seder, and they confront their own lives, and they have sequential moments, and they have zmira moments, they're going to be well equipped right away. They're going to say, I grew up with this in my Pesach Seder. I'm not folding my cards right now. I grew up with the oscillating narrative. I'm prepared for this. I know how to confront this. And that's what you're going to give over as a narrative at your Pesach Seder. And that's going to be not just the narrative of your children's Pesach Seder. That's going to be the character of their religious identity. And that's a religious identity that no matter what happens, they're ready to weather that. Because things happen. I want to highlight some of the Torahs, a couple Torahs, 
that I think are very sweet, very easy to give over. And if you have a, a, a father or a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law or a mother-in-law or a son or whatever, a daughter, whatever it is in your family who's like very high-end or needs a very fancy schmancy Torah and it needs to be sourced in a million different ways, they're going to like it. And if you need somebody who just needs a very easy, the friendship, the friend who you meet right away and give a big smile to, they'll also appreciate it. I want to give you a few of those that you could say at your Pesach Seder. And we're going to turn back now. We're going to turn back now to the beginning of Kiddush. Which the, the page is hard to find on the bottom. It's really page 8. It's page 8. It's the purple page right over here. The purple page. What other Haggadah can you identify based on the color of the page? We open up the Haggadah and it says in big letters, Redemption is not binary. This is an idea that is said over from the Nitziv. The Nitziv says this. Nitziv, 19th century, is a Rosh Hashiv in Valazhan. And he has a beautiful idea where we drink four cups of wine. Why do we drink four cups of wine? That, that seems like a lot. So the Gemara says the Medrash connects these four cups of wine to the four languages that we have in this Pusik that we have right here. And they're bolded in purple. That's so convenient. The four languages that we have for redemption. That the verse says, and you could they're bolded in purple, both in the Hebrew and the English. It says, Hotsesi, Hitsalti, Gaalti, Vilakahti. And the four cups of wine that we have are based on those four languages. And the Natsiv says, You want to know why we have so many languages of redemption? Because the Natsiv says it's coming to tell you that redemption is not binary. It's not a zero and one. It's not that life is awful or life is great. It's not that you're either redeemed or that you are in exile. That sometimes the way that you extricate yourself from life's difficulties happens through a very long process. And it takes time. And every step has dignity and significance in and of itself. Every step in the process has dignity in and of itself. In fact, the Maharal writes in his commentary on Tefillah, the Maharal writes, Have you ever watched somebody, Davin Shimon Esrei? Well, it's a creepy thing to do. You should be davening at the time. It's weird to have binoculars. Just look at everybody else in shul. But assuming that you did bring those binoculars to shul, and you watch somebody else Davin Shimon Esrei, sometimes when people Davin Shimon Esrei, they bow down like this, and then they get up very, very slowly. From Modem. They bow down like this, and they get up very, very slowly. So why do they do that? So the Gemara says that you're supposed to do that. The Gemara says you're supposed to bow down like a staff, you go down very quickly, and then you come up very, very slowly. Why is that? Why is there that dichotomy? Why, why don't you just do that? Why, why, why does the Gemara say you should get up slowly? So it connects to this idea. Because the Maharal writes, and this is what the Nativ is saying, it only takes an instant to feel like you've lost everything. It only takes an instant to feel bereft. To feel like nothing is working out. It only takes a moment to feel like how many people have started their day and within the first 10 minutes, they, it's, this, today is not my day. They write off the next 24 hours. You can't find your keys, coffee spilled on your shirt, and the newspaper got, the neighbor stole the newspaper again. Three things happen and all of a sudden, t- today is over. Today is over. It's, 
It's, it's 7.40 in the morning and you're already wrote off the whole day. It only takes a moment for a person to feel like they're in exile. But to get out of exile take, is a process. It takes many, many steps. And that is why we have many different languages for Geula. Because we want people to know that we know you felt bereft. We know that we felt, both in Mitzrayim and in our lives, that we lost everything. But the process of getting out of that is going to take time. It's going to take a lot of steps. It's going to take some patience. But each step that you take out of there, each little sign that you get that I'm headed in the right direction, that has significance. Even if you're not all the way, all the way where you're supposed to be, the fact that you're on your way, the fact that you're on your way up, slowly, 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 like we do in davening, already has tremendous significance. I want to then start with the introduction on page 15 to Halach Ma'anya. Again, we're trying to say quick nuggets. There's a lot more in this Haggadah to read. A lot of very juicy stuff. Some beautiful poetry in the Haggadah. Not my own, but really nice to read. I want to talk about the beginning of Halach Ma'anya. Halach Ma'anya is we open up the Seder and we say... Whoever wants to come to our Seder, we immediately invite people called Whoever wants to come into our Seder can come and eat. I don't know about you. I've never said and somebody knocked on the door and came in at our Pesach Seder. Never in my whole life. Why is this the introduction to our Passover Seder is inviting other people in? And I think it's a very simple but sweet concept, which is that we are celebrating our freedom. And the greatest act of freedom, the greatest act of independence, is the ability to give to somebody else. So the way that we articulate our freedom is by giving. In fact, in fact, in halacha, the way that we define somebody, whether or not they are an adult or not an adult, a gadol, is whether or not they have the capacity to give or they're, or they're only receiving. <coughs> or they're only on the take. Somebody who's only accepting and is only giving and is only taking from other people in halacha is not considered in the same capacity as an adult. An adult, godless, is somebody who sees what other people need. In fact, the Torah, when it describes Moshe Rabbeinu growing up, it says, Vayigda Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu grew up. What was the next part of the Pesach? It says, Vayar B'Sivlosam. He saw what his brothers were going through. The greatest sign of an adult, of independence, is being able to give and see what other people need. And we celebrate... Thank you so much. It's a real God, though. Yes. We celebrate, we celebrate our freedom by our ability to give. And that's such an important message to give to your children. That a lot of times, kids grow up, it's so funny, if you ask a young child, ask a, ask a, a four-year-old, who's the most important person in the shul? Who's the most important person in the shul? So if, the, the, so they'd say either the candy man. When I was a kid, the, 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 my, when I was a kid, I assumed the most important person in the shul was the guy who had the most keys. Whoever had the most keys? I saw a guy, he's, he's got like 80 sets of keys. This guy, he can open up any door. 
It was the custodian. And I thought that it was the most... And the custodian is a very kind, very wonderful person. I wouldn't think an adult wouldn't say the most important, most chashev, esteemed member of the shul is the guy with the most keys. We grow up with very skewed senses of, of importance. Who's the most important person in the room? Halach ba'anya is the introduction that's saying the most important person in the room, the most free person in the room, is the capacity to give. Person who gives of his time, the person who gives of his attention, of his wealth, of his kindness, of her smile. Whatever it is, the people who are givers is the ultimate testament to freedom. Which is why the Pesach Haggadah opens up as a celebration of freedom. How do we celebrate freedom? We celebrate freedom by giving. So many, so many super duper, super duper sweet Torahs. I want to talk about Manishtana very quickly. I want to talk about Manishtana. It's right on the next page. You know what? I'm going to skip Manishtana. Everybody here has a lot of Vartlach on Manishtana. We're skipping. We're going all the way to the back. We're going all the way to the back. I am now going to go to probably the most controversial part of the Haggadah. And I'm going to go skip all the way to page 35. What are drushos? I'm going to end. This is very unorthodox. And I also quote somebody who's unorthodox in here. But I, I am skipping to the end because, in my opinion, as I write, this is the intro. Spoiler alert. This is the part of the Haggadah where a lot of people space out. This is the part of the Haggadah where your eyes glaze over. People start mumbling. This is where people take the bathroom breaks. I take them too. Don't worry. And people start to space out. And I want to spend the end over here to talk about what are drushos. Why do we spend so much time at the end of the Pesach Seder going through the verses and explicating them in ways that seem to make no sense. What are we trying to do here? What are we trying to accomplish in this last part of the Seder? <clears throat> we go through the stories of Arami Ovi Avi, of 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 Yaakov and Lavan. We go through stories of of um, our exit from Egypt, and in all of these stories, it quotes the verse, and then it goes through all of these explications, all of these explanations of what the verse is really talking about, what is really happening with this idea. And why are drushos? Like, just give me, give me the idea. Give me something sweet. Why is this the center feature of our Pesach Seder? And I think that drushos are not only the most important part of the Seder, it's the most important part of our religion. It is literally the foundation of the Jewish religion is based on the exercise of making Drushos. In fact, the Gemara in Kiddushin says, the Gemara asks, what are, what are the words that are at the center of the Torah? If you go through and count all the words in the Torah, what's at the center of the Torah? The, word, the Gemara in Kiddushin says, it's the words, Darash, Darash, to seek. Drushos is the way that we explore and find meaning in the text. It's the way that we take a text that otherwise seems to have a very plain surface meaning. 
and we are Doresh, we seek to find purpose and meaning inside of that text. And if you go through the Gemara, the Gemara is doing this not only with verses in the Torah, it's doing with Mishnah, it's doing with the Gemara. The Gemara all the time asks, says, a quote of Mishnah, it says, this Mishnah makes no sense, it contradicts this Brisa. So the Gemara says, What is that Mishnah talking about? It's talking about X, and this other Mishnah is talking about Z, so it's not a contradiction. It's, it, 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 it cleans up the apparent contradiction in our texts. And this is the center feature of our, of our Haggadah experience. And I want to explain why. Because there's a word that I quote here, from a famous Bible scholar, I know it from an article that my teacher in Revel taught me. It's the word called omni-significance. Omni-significance, it, it sounds like omniscient, like that God is everywhere. Omni-significance is the belief that we can find significance throughout the Torah text. That no matter what Torah text you have in front of you, there is omni-significance. There is a way that if you read this more ca- carefully... It's not a contradiction. It doesn't make no sense. It's not irrelevant. We can find significance in this text. We can find meaning and value in this ritual, in this experience. And if drushes are doing anything, it is the search, it is the journey, it is the commitment that you say to yourself that there is meaning in this text. And the reason why Gemara, and the reason why Mishnah, And the reason why the entire rabbinic corpus is based on the fact that we have drushas is because ultimately, like we know from the Gemara Gemara in Moekotan and several other Gemaras, that human beings, that (laughs) Jews, are compared to a Torah text. And that the way we relate to somebody is literally like a Torah text. And sometimes we meet Jews, like we just started, who require a drusha. You know, I don't like people who just say, you know, plan, oh, I love every Jew. I love every Jew. Achtas, achtas, achtas. I love every Jew. Usually I find those people, they only love certain Jews. They only love certain people. They make it seem so easy, and they have a neo Havid kol Yehudi written on their yarmulke, I love every Jew, and they make it seem so, so easy, I, I feel like they never really tried. To really love every Jew, to really love every person, requires a lot of effort, and a lot of jerisha, and a lot of drushas. Because you're going to meet people, and you probably have friends who they can't be in the same room together. You love both of them, but they can't be in the same room together. And you need to make a drusha to explain, this friend has value, and this friend has value, and I esteem both of them. And they each give different things to my life. And not only that, what drushas ultimately are doing is that the way that the drusha approaches the text, the drusha is also the way that we're supposed to approach time in our own lives. That if the drusha is the way that we approach text, the way that we do drushas in our own life, and this is what we began with, is we make drushas in time. We look at time in our own oscillating narratives and in our own lives and we say, you know, I'm going through a really tough period right now. Life seems meaningless. Life seems really, really difficult. 
how do I explore and find meaning in this period of my life? What are the tools, what are the ingredients for people to find meaning at every period in their life? And that is the commitment, and that is ultimately the value that all of Gemara, all of Mishnah, all of Jerashos are coming to instill. The tenacious commitment that's saying life is omni-significant. Life, no matter what period I'm in, no matter what part of my narrative is unfolding, there is significance in there. Whether I'm in the Shira part, or I'm in the Zemer part. Whether it's the part about when my grandfather or great-grandparent went bankrupt, whether it's Khalila that there was illness in the family. It might not be right now. It might not even be in five years from now. But we can create drushas that find meaning in our psukim, that find meaning in our gemaras, that find meaning in our friendships, and in other people. And ultimately, and ultimately, the goal of drushas, and the goal of perpetuating all of our narratives, is to find meaning in our own lives. And to find that the different contradictions and difficulties that we have in our life, if we apply the principles of drushos, if we apply the principles of how we explore Gemara, we can find meaning in the Shira and the Zemer to perpetuate our tradition and our narrative for the next generation. Thank you all so much, and a chakash and a Thank you. Terrific. Want to thank.